This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today, I'm talking to Stan Flink, Stanley E. Flink, officially. He's the author of a new book called Due Diligence and the News, subtitled Searching for a Moral Compass in the Digital Age. How are you, Stan? Fine, thank you, David. Well, thank you for doing this. Um, you know, I should just preface by saying that we know each other a little bit. Um, I helped you work on this book, um, but I think in the process of working with you, I have become really impressed with your thinking and your ideas um, about an issue that I think is really present for every citizen in the United States and that gets it you know there's a lot of discussion on on in the news and online about um the media and you, your experience with media goes back a number of years as it does so i think you're uniquely positioned as a journalist with a great deal of experience and an awareness of what's going on today that is pretty profound so just talk a little bit about what prompted you to write this book. I, I have a feeling I can guess, but I'd really like to hear from you directly. Well, there are a good many reasons. I mean, some of it just flowed from the fact that I went into a kind of retirement community here in Connecticut where uh, most of the people around me are in their late 80s and 90, and into their 90s. And they asked me almost at once, when I say they, I mean a group of the residents, whether I wouldn't continue something like what I was, had been teaching at Yale University as an undergraduate seminar, uh, would I, whether I wouldn't kind of uh, reflect on that and, and bring some of it to them, uh, to the audience here. Uh, and I discovered, much to my surprise, that people in their 90s could be very intensely interested in the media that was going to become part of the lives of their uh, children and their grandchildren. So some of it, this book flowed from the kinds of reactions and questions I got from these people, when I uh, produced a lecture every week for the first few months, I was here and then reduced it to uh, one every two weeks. But for four years, I have been lecturing, and in the last two, I've been working on the book. Aside from that, however, there is a, a, a much more important answer to your question, which is witnessing, bearing witness to the extraordinary transition of the media from print, largely newspapers and magazines, and when I say media, I mean news media, the extraordinary transition from that to the electronic media, the television, and then, of course, the Internet and the online applications. Um, and the, the difference between them is so great that one cannot just look at it as a kind of continuum. It's almost as if a new kind of universe of 
understandings about the news has to be developed uh, to deal with the uh, enormous reach of the uh, internet platforms and the uh, fragmentation of opinion expression that uh, social media has permitted. And of course, the misuse and the very great creative use, uh, one, one extreme to the other. All those kinds of developments uh, struck me as being so profound that I had to uh, write about them. Well, and it seems, you know, I, I think that I think it's important that you have had the experience. Um, across such a long period of time. You started as a journalist so many years ago. When you started, it was prior to the advent of electronic media. I mean, I think tele radio certainly was, uh, you know, was in existence. But I think that as you indicate, you know, in this book, you, you kind of go back historically and talk about not only the history of news media, but of the position that news is afforded, unique position that news is afforded in a in our democracy, um, as the um, uh, as a protected class, uh, in order to provide oversight to the politicians, and that I think that perspective informs your um, historical uh, pursuit of how the differences have evolved over the great period of time. Yes, that's quite quite true, quite on the mark. Uh, I, I came into uh, journalism in 1948, right after, a day after graduating college, and I um, went to work for Life magazine, uh, Life and Time, actually, and ultimately several other magazines were produced by the company called Time Incorporated. But life was the biggest, the largest, the most widely distributed, and possibly in some ways the most influential uh, of the news media uh, possibilities for people in those days. And uh, I started in that medium, a kind of visual medium or picture news, but the words carefully selected that uh, made those pictures understandable and, and meaningful. Uh, television came on uh, swiftly, but not so swiftly as the internet and the digital applications have come on. Nowhere near as swiftly, but I, I can remember the first newscast I, I watched on television, which was the 15-minute reading of material from the wire services by a man sitting at a desk in front of a microphone with one camera. <laughs> uh, and it, uh, the, the matter in which that particular form of communication grew and um, achieved a level of uh, excitement that uh, for a while uh, probably claimed at least two-thirds of the audience for news and certainly the most important uh, segment of it. Uh, and it changed, of course, the way news was perceived uh, 
quite significantly. But again, I repeat, nowhere near the uh, significance of the changes brought on by the Internet and the digital. Well, one of the things I thought that, you know, you I think you allude to this, that, you know, it, or it seems to me anyway, that the television media grew very directly out of the written form, as you just described, that they were, you know, the news was... Uh, a kind of in the 20th century, the right, written newspapers believed in a sort of um, uh, uh, a code of ethics and a code of conduct that kept, as you you know, as you talked about, news uh, editorial separated from advertising and a commitment to always um, telling the truth as best as you're able to present it. Right. And that tradition of 20th century newspapering flowed pretty re readily into the television news media, which, even though it was different, and I think really profoundly different, still maintained a kind of continuous set of standards um, so that as we, you know, as I was growing up, as you were an adult, the, um, you know, the authority, the authoritativeness of the news was unquestioned, that you know, that there might be a little difference in the way that, you know, NBC, CBS, and ABC might present things a little differently, but what they were presenting was relatively agreed upon as fact. Um, and that, I think, is where we come to this, you know, the fork in the road with the internet is, as you, as you said earlier, there's not only fragmentation, but the mass availability of the means of dissemination means that there is no agreement any longer on not only what the truth is, but how to say it, you know, how to tell the truth. Right. That is the fundamental <coughs> challenge that arose. The fact that truth <coughs> became almost irrelevant. It became largely a, a kind of preferred reality that individuals or institutional groups of media people might choose. Uh, there, there wasn't that kind of deep-seated trust in uh, the accuracy and truthfulness <clears throat> of what was presented. It, it flew in many directions and at many different speeds, and uh, it soon became convenient to form form the truth for yourself or for your particular point of view, uh, for your prejudices and preferences. Uh, and truth and trust began to erode uh, in a manner that separated it from the traditional forms of the media from its, the earliest days, beginning with the invention of the printing press. Uh, where there, right, right from the start, there was a certain kind of uh, faithfulness to uh, truth telling, at least among uh, the best of the practitioners. Uh, ben Franklin, who started a newspaper in the early 18th century, uh, you know, once wrote a little editorial called "Apology for Printers." Uh, in his time, printers 
were publishers, and and the apology was not really uh, an expression of regret. It was an expression of aspiration that they would uh, tell the truth as best they could, to use your phrase, and they would uh, also avoid abusing uh, privacy and uh, and the the rights of the the subjects they were writing about uh, protecting their rights as well i mean let's let's face it the press in american history and in our current society is the only private enterprise profit making enterprise that does have a constitutional protection and with that protection it seems to me and to many others of course far far more established and thoughtful than uh, I was as I was getting into the media, there was this belief that with that protection, one had a responsibility. And the responsibility was to be as accurate and fair as one could be, given the deadline culture of, of news. Yeah, I think that actually is a really uh, important point, that with freedom comes responsibility, that we don't have a completely unlimited freedom of speech. We have a freedom of speech that is fettered by responsibility. You know, the cl classic statement that you can't go into a, a, a crowded theater and yell fire, that's a freedom of speech, but it's not one that's protected. And I think that as you know, I remember when the internet began and I was a pretty active supporter and participant in uh, the 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 budding uh, beginnings of of the internet, and I thought then, and I now really feel differently about this. But I thought then that by making it possible for anyone to have the means of production, essentially the means of dissemination, the means of communication, would free uh, individual humans to be more creative, to communicate more freely, to to positively. Um, benefit human society. And what has ironically transpired in the course of the last 30 years is that that freedom has been abused to the point where it is now um, eminently possible to falsify information and for no one to be the wiser. You know, as you probably heard of this idea of the deep fake, you know, the where there uh, where it's possible to literally create a video of someone that is completely 100% fabricated but looks just like the person. So you can have them saying and doing things that are completely false. Um, it, you know, that, that thing that was done to Nancy Pelosi where they took her um, speech, slowed it down so, so much that it appeared that she was drunk. Yes. And that is an illustration of the abuse of free speech. Indeed, and you could add to that narrative the fact that she asked them to ask Facebook to remove it from uh, their... You know their operation altogether, and they refused to do so. Uh, the, the idea that the internet could allow information that was good and bad, ugly or beautiful—that all of it w would would be presented—and that uh, society, human society, would have the capacity to make their own 
judgments. Uh, the effect of the abuse is so uh, enormous and uh, un, uh, irreparable. Irreparable. Well, if you if you can reach hundreds of millions of people uh, overnight with uh, a series of carefully fabricated untruths and outright lies and falsifications, how do you ever correct that right. for 150 or 200 million people? Right, no, it's as impossible. Well. As they say, you know, the lie travels around the world before the truth has a chance to catch up. Yeah. And I think yes. the internet is so radically recursive in that any piece of information can become widely disseminated, repeated. And as you know, from information theory, if something is repeated enough times, it begins to be actually get through to people. Even if they don't literally believe it, they um, inherently, you know, they begin to, to feel that it must be true. So that, and this is what um, I think the damage or the danger for moder our democratic society, ironically, and you point this out, is that the tools of freedom are used by those who oppose freedom to destroy the democracy itself. Right. And, and ironically, in some cases, more cleverly than those who are performing with intellectual honesty. Well, it almost always it's almost always that the the the, the um, wrongdoer has um, the ability to uh, uh, fool more people than the honest person can convince uh, uh, of truth. You know, we uh, we went through back in the uh, late forties and fifties the Senator Joe McCarthy's reign of terror. Uh, where he he applied the uh, repetition principle uh, over and over and held up a briefcase and said, I have in here the names of 150 communists in the State Department of the United States, and kept saying it so often that, as you say, people began to think, well, it must be true, or at least it must be largely true, and it would take its toll, uh, as so many fabrications are today. I mean, the 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 fact that uh, there's almost an industry now has been created for falsification of information, and and there's a kind of amorality rather than a morality about it, uh, and to the point where uh, many young people are are really indifferent to the fact that they're watching something that could be untrue and uh, and yet taking it as a, as fact and my my deepest uh, concerns in in my book which uses the phrase due diligence uh, in the title due diligence and the news due diligence calls for an effort to satisfy that responsibility of being protected by the Constitution to express yourself on matters of public affairs. And the fact that the, the truth of it can no longer be taken for granted means that each of us has to make literally a personal effort to determine where the truth is and who's telling it. We're getting help. We're getting a lot of help nowadays with 
fact checkers and with responsible journals and journalists who, who uh, identify uh, the areas of fabrication and falsity and, and, and call them out, so to speak. Uh, but the effort for the individual consumer, it seems to me, is now literally unavoidable. I mean, he, if you care about the truth, you have to make an effort to, to compare things, to research things, to look for uh, the truth wherever it may be hidden and to reveal the untruth wherever possible. Uh, there was a piece in the New York Times, an editorial yesterday, where a young student wrote to a columnist at the Times and said, I read your your column, and I, I compared it to what I was being told in the classroom, and they were almost opposite each other. How do I determine which one to believe? And the columnist made a very practical and not surprising recommendation that the student go to the library and look up certain books and compare certain journals and simply make that common sense effort that amounts to due diligence in the long run. It sounds easy, but it's going to require a kind of uh, a new approach to the understanding of news that has never really quite existed before. Uh, a dimension of uh, determining truth for yourself and not accepting what is laid out in front of you automatically. But I, you know, I, I, I believe, I really, I support that notion, but I, what I fear is that in a busy modern society, not un, not actually not so unlike what was going on 200 years ago or longer ago that is that the vast majority of people do not spend the time to learn or to study or to understand the groundwork of uh the of the reality and that you know there major there many people i don't know how many this will be but it seems like the majority of people are less concerned about those issues, the matters of truth and understanding and of, of, you know, determining what is reality than they are in kind of the day-to-day -day, um, uh, realities of life, and which is fair and reasonable. You know, not people are busy. They don't always have time um, to do that kind of research that you're talking about. And what cons I think what worries us is that the danger is greater than it once was, that we can't any longer rely on enough of enough people knowing the reality of truth, being able to determine fact from fiction, that the, it, there are too many uh, risk factors, um, and it, it just feels more dangerous than it ever has well, been. And, and David, it is more dangerous. And you're absolutely right about people not being ready to practice due diligence or not having the time or, for that matter, the mental capacity. But that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be explored and, and, uh, and that innovative approaches to it can make it easier for people to uh, exercise due diligence. Fact-checking fact uh, sites online. 
uh, and in in print is one example. But there are also actual curriculum changes or opportunities in public schools and private schools, of course, that uh, where media literacy is the phrase that's being used is being taught in schools and in some uh, 20-odd states uh, is is a required course in public education to, to teach young people how to understand or how to identify uh, or at least how to suspect that they are looking at something that seems all too convenient or all too exaggerated or all too preposterous to be true and and uh, and give them the uh the understanding of where they might go to check on it and to find out about it but until we make our society more aware of the danger that's surrounding them uh you know it's like this chinese virus that is killing so many people in china and frightening so many people around the world uh how many people want to take the time to worry about hygiene and uh, cleanliness and uh, defense against disease, uh, but we'll have to, and and we'll have to learn more about it. And, uh, I, th- I, I think it's a comparable situation that uh, the, the, the manner in which we educate the young has got to include a consciousness of uh, the need for truthful information, because if you don't have truth, you have no weapon against abuse of power. You have no way of answering. Uh, And truth has to become a a truly paramount and vital uh, resource for the education of ordinary people. And I hope that uh, I, I see bits of it happening and I hope more of it will happen. But one thing I'm certain of, it has to happen if we're to survive as a society. After all, we're up against the smart machines that uh, artificial intelligence is creating that will one day, in the view of most scientists, be smarter than we are. And how we maintain our position, our control over our society as the human species versus these machines is becoming a a major issue. Somewhere in that ethos is the word truth that still has to maintain itself, still has to be identified, still has to be searched for, and we must have some trust in our institutions, and we can't if we don't believe in their truthfulness. I think that's very accurate. I think your, your book overall, I will tell you, I think is profoundly um, apt, and I, I hope that it will reach a, as large an audience as needs it, because it is absolutely right that we need to have um, a better understanding and a better set of tools for understanding um, what's going on around us. And I, I think you're talking about uh, AI and the and the world, you know, the issues that revolve around um, uh, in human based uh, or in artificially based intelligence is really also profound. So, um, I want to thank you for writing this book, and uh, I appreciate what you put into it.
Thank you, David. I enjoyed talking to you, and I hope we've reached a few people who, who may be interested and curious enough to take a look at artificial intelligence and all the other issues that are part of my thesis in uh, due diligence. Thank you very much. No, thank you for coming on. And I will say there's so many great perceptions in this book and so much history packed into a really short book. I commend you for uh, being able to do that. <laughs> so thank you, Stanley Flink, for writing Due Diligence and the News and for talking to me about this book. This has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk. Thank you.